Hey, Digitally China is produced together with our friends at Radii, this awesome independent media platform. If you're interested in culture and innovation in China, you should definitely check out RadioChina.com. They'll give you an inside look into everything from China's underground music scene to bike sharing. That's R-A-D-I-I-China.com. So when Tom and I were thinking about how to talk about Huawei, which is a really hot topic in media these days because of the trade war, the fact that its chief financial officer Meng Wanzhou is currently on bail in Canada, etc., we were thinking about how can we add values to podcasts and talk about this really interesting topic. So we're actually going to spend this episode just focusing on the corporate culture and what makes the company tick, what makes its employees work notoriously hard, and things like that. And before they got all this global attention in China, there were actually quite a lot of stories about how unique the Huawei culture is, and we got really curious about the inside of the company. That's what we wanted to find out. Welcome to Digitally China, a podcast about the fascinating Chinese, Chinese tech industry, industry created together with Radii. I'm Eva. I'm Jacob, and I'm Tom. So, according to various studies, China's gaming industry is now, in fact, the largest in the world. You may know their messaging app called WeChat. Chinese outbound M&A. Chinese corporates are buying international yeah. companies at a record pace. The hottest phone you've probably never heard of. China's Xiaomi, yes, it's state. It's claim to Apple's crown. Major deal over in China. You have Chinese tech giant Tencent leading an $8.6 billion acquisition to buy a major stake at Supercell. $14.3 billion in sales clocked by a Chinese e-commerce site in one wild day. So to get a taste of Huawei's corporate culture, we spoke to a few current and former employees and researched material online, especially because a lot of people were not willing to speak with us on the record. I think that probably has to do with how much media coverage the company is getting right now and how a lot of things are sensitive. But something to keep in mind before we jump in is that Huawei is an enormous company with over 180,000 employees worldwide. So this episode is by no means a comprehensive look at Huawei's culture, and keep in mind that there may be variations across markets and departments. So after speaking to a few current and former employees on the record, but mostly off the record, it became very clear that one of the most unique parts about Huawei culture. Is the way the company communicates. So a lot of the language that it uses is very military focused, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the founder Yuan Zhengfei、um, used to be in the People's Liberation Army or China's military. And this is how one of the former employees put it. A lot of the language they use is very militaristic. Like calling for artillery, or send artillery to the front line. Oh, we are battling in this region. You feel like you are fighting a war. There's a sense of urgency. The whole company, from top to bottom, never makes you feel like, oh, we're a huge company, we're number one, we're awesome. Never. You always feel like the company is facing imminent danger, like we could die next year. So the quote that we just heard is from Shen Rui. And he worked at Huawei between 2011 and 
And while he was there, he was what's called a business analyst. So he kind of sat between the clients and the engineers. So he would go around and understand the client needs and then communicate it back to the uh, software engineers, um, the developers, the designers. I mean, Alibaba are also famous for this type of bombastic language use, right? Not very militaristic, maybe, but also from a perspective of struggling and working hard. Like that famous Jack Ma quote that, you know, today is hard, tomorrow is going to be harder, but the day after tomorrow is going to be beautiful or something like that. It's really cheesy. I think, so I've thought about this when I saw a lot of media reports before I started doing research for this podcast episode is that previously I'd written a story about Singles Day, so you know the huge shopping holiday mm-hmm. created by Alibaba. And a lot of the engineers there would talk about that night as like waging war or battle and things like that. And I was wondering if this focus on Huawei's military-like language was just kind of lost in translation. But actually, I think... Um, in Huawei's case, it is significant. It is different because a lot of, let's say, slogans or phrases that are repeated in company training material and distributed uh, throughout you know different markets, a lot of them do tie back to actual military concepts. So, for example, there's one um, that someone who works at Huawei told us, which is this and is just the idea of like four different teams that have their own different specializations. Like let's say in the military could be like, I guess the artillery people and then, but you know, like different functionalities, but together they're one team fighting for the same cause. But it's like a very military focused phrase. And that is used in Huawei and it's very abstract, but it ties back to military strategy. And also I think there's a lot of, sharing of war stories like, you know, how someone won this battle and then kind of thinking about or discussing amongst your colleagues like how you can apply to your work. So I think also the difference between Huawei and other tech companies is that they do have their own, let's say, war stories. Like, for example, during Algeria's earthquake in 2003, which killed more than 3,000 people, you know, Huawei employees stayed there to work. Or, you know, during Libya's civil war, the company employees stayed there to work. Um, So they do have kind of abstract military stories that, you know, people consume during training sessions. But they also have their own, which becomes, I guess, part of the company folklore and is used to tell people like, you know, we're waging battle and, you know, it's important to work really hard and focus on the customer because, you know, customer centricity is one of their main tenets. So I think like... Um, The difference for me is that it's just this idea, this military language and the storytelling is much more prevalent. It's in the training and people who read about Huawei know that they have like boot camps, you know, a lot of the company culture. It's there's a huge emphasis on spreading this messaging, a lot of it being military focused. And then also these ideas of war stories, like people doing making huge sacrifices for the greater cause, which in this case is, you know, the company and also the company's customers. So not only do they have bombastic language, but they actually make the employees uh, believe in it and actually work harder as a result of it. Yeah, and I think like, for example, what Shinrei just said, like, you know, he mentioned uh, sending artillery to the front line, like even in our conversation, he would refer to some other markets as Yixian or the front line. You know, it's just so ingrained the way that they refer to things using military language. 
Um, and I think part of it is to create this culture of fighting and also enemies and also this idea that you can die at any moment, this kind of always being on the brink of, I guess, destruction. I think those are things that come from the top. So I think Ren Fei is constantly kind of pushing this idea that Huawei is never safe and we have to work really hard to stay alive. And that's part of, I, that's all tied to this military language. I think like a consequence of this ties into another important topic in Huawei's company culture, which is just working insanely hard all the time. In the years that I was there, I never once spent Chinese New Year at home. That's also why, in addition to my girlfriends, I wanted to return home that I left the company. For fresh graduates with no obligations at home, you're not really affected. But let's say I'm 30 and working at Huawei. If my kid gets sick or something happens at home, that would be tough for me. So this seems to be a common thread among a lot of Chinese tech companies, as we have covered before in our 9 and 6 episode, that the employees, they are sacrificing their personal lives in order to give the company higher performances. But did you get any actual concrete example of what this entails? So yeah, I think it is worth kind of thinking about how China's tech industry overall has a reputation, especially for people outside of the country, of working super hard. You know, the idea of 996, uh, people working 12 hours a day, six days a week, which we covered before, right? But I think Huawei, even in the industry, has a reputation for a very unforgiving work environment that you kind of put up with or accept because you're rewarded for it. You know, you're financially compensated for it or you get really good training and you feel like it pushes your career forward. So you're willing to do like put in crazy hours. Um, so in the past, like Huawei has been one of those companies where people die from overworking. So, for example, in 2006, um, a really young employee, a 25 year old, died of encephalitis. There have been multiple employees who have committed suicide. And I think that's something that for me, at least, I associate with companies like Foxconn, where it's like a factory work setting um, and people are churning things out like Apple products and that leads them to commit suicide. So I think like even in the industry, Huawei has this reputation. And I think in the company, I think they're aware of it. You know, like I was speaking to a current employee and they said that I don't know how common this is. I'd be curious like what you've heard um, from other companies is that they have like a yearly stress test and actually during their boot camp so the boot camp being like their onboard training they actually had a psychologist speak for one of the days in their training and they were given this stress test which in the stress test the employees said that one of the questions was like are you ever so angry that you want to beat your child um like sometimes true rarely you know just something ridiculous like that which is why it made such a deep impression And I think that shows like this weird awareness that the employees and the company has about how demanding their work is, but also accepting it. Yeah, so they're trying to optimize for everyone to perform at max, but want to minimize the risks of people killing themselves. Yeah, I think like there's another, um, like an employee had also said that uh, one of their training materials was asking like, okay, let's say... You have an employee who's overworking and on the edge of, like, quitting because of the workload, and you're their manager. What do you do? Like, what's the right scenario? Like, kind of talking about 
this case, which I guess probably has come up before, um, which isn't, again, unique to Huawei, but I'm just saying like there is this awareness of working super hard, but then also accepting it. Um, And I guess like another example is that at least um, a few years ago, the company would ask people joining the company to kind of sign a voluntary slip, giving up their vacation. They basically say that um, instead of getting vacation, what you do is you work the last Saturday of every month, I believe. And at the end of the year, then that gives you 12 vacation days or you can swap it in for money. So that exchange, right, you can see it like you work hard and you can get compensated for it or you can use it as vacation. So I think like that's a good kind of mini example of this trade-off. I think in addition to being financially compensated, I think like a softer part of the culture is just, you know, according to what I've read and also heard in my conversations is that this comes from the top. So Ren Zhengfei is, he's always spreading this idea or trying to let employees know that the company can die at any moment. And this goes back to, you know, like this idea of being at war. The company can always die and you can't really drop your guard for any second. And I think there's a lot of big telecom companies, especially in China, that have kind of, yeah, died over the years. And I think if you want to look for examples of one successful companies, they're everywhere. So, I mean, he kind of draws from that, but I think that's also a very big part of the company is just never feeling quite there, which Shinrei just mentioned, right? It's not only Chinese companies. I mean, all the big corporations and companies in the world are facing the same struggles, which is whenever they get too big and too comfortable and they have a bunch of employees and teams that are getting lazy, taking too much vacation and whatnot, they stop innovating, they stop moving fast enough, and then they get disrupted. Uh, I'm not saying that you should always have a company where you work people to death. From that perspective, you kind of can understand why they are pushing so hard on that type of messaging internally to make sure you know they still grow. Because again, we're talking about the company that are making over 100 billion US dollars and over 180,000 employees. So they are not the startup and they are not the small tech company. They are one of the largest companies in the world. Yeah. And I think that this idea of kind of being worried about the company or employees being too comfortable um, makes me think of um, something current employee said, which is that, you know, a lot of employees are sent out from China to work overseas in new markets, right, or overseas markets. And there's this, I guess they said an unwritten rule, so I'm not sure if this is true, but just rotating people frequently, you know, not letting them stay, let's say beyond four years, because there's this worry that they'll get too comfortable in that market. um, And once the stress dissipates, they won't work as hard. Yeah, so an interesting concept that Shenrui brought up in our conversation is this idea of a blue army. I don't know if this is unique to Huawei per se, but it's definitely something that they have, which is a dedicated workforce that their main purpose or goal is to kind of think like the enemy. Um, It's kind of like an enemy simulation. So to think of ways that um, Huawei's product has weaknesses or their way of working has loopholes or ways that they might fail, um, to ask Mm. questions kind of going against the grain. And I think, like, this idea of an enemy simulation is one of the very clear ways that Huawei is trying to, in a way, like, kind of counteract any consequences, you know, negative consequences of success, which is, like, you know, getting lazy or making assumptions because you're the winner. Yeah, I guess that's a really good way to do it when you don't have any like super strong competitors, which I perceive that Huawei doesn't have. 
and in order to progress fast enough and kind of create a fictional competitor to keep everyone, you know, pushing forward and, you know, perform their best. Yeah, and I think, like, in addition to kind of, like, thinking like the competition, I feel like this idea of a blue army also is a way maybe for the company to have more suggestions or recommendations that go against maybe what the company is currently doing. Because I think, like, if you have something that's successful, a very natural bias is to kind of agree with the current strategy, right? Instead of looking against it. I'm I'm sure that's not unique, but it is, you know, another part of um, Huawei's structure. I think something else that struck me after speaking with um, people that have worked at Huawei is that they have a very organized management structure. I think it's totally necessary because they're in, I think they serve over 170 countries, right? So they have this level system that is also tied to a grading system um, that ties to how employees move up and down the company and also their benefits. And I, I don't think that maybe is present at companies like Alibaba or Tencent. So Every employee has a level, and that's public. And it starts at 13. You know, people that I talked to seemed unclear of how high it went, but, you know, around 24, 25, maybe director level people are 21. And so you, you start at 13 if you're, like, a fresh grad. And in order to move up, you have, like, a yearly assessment. You know, you kind of share your progress, very tangible results or contributions that you've made, and you kind of defend your argument that you should move up a level in front of three other people that are part of the same business department, but not necessarily like your direct line manager. I, th- I feel for me, like the biggest takeaway from this level structure is that, you know, if you want to be promoted, uh, they need to see your, your current level. So in a way, um, it's very difficult for you to jump up a few rungs within a year unless you're absolutely exceptional, like your boss's boss is taking note. So I think like it's very steady upward movement. And for some people, um, they feel like it's kind of shows bigger emphasis on your actual output and your work versus your relationships. Yeah, I actually heard that at least among the engineers, Microsoft have a similar system where, you know, it's level based and depending on your annual performance, you can stay at the same level go down the level, which essentially means you're fired, or jump one or maximum, I think, two or three levels. And what I've heard is that actually a lot of Chinese tech companies such as Tencent and Huawei have been inspired very much by Microsoft and equivalent companies' kind of structures to operate very large teams, uh, do performance evaluation, to enable employees to get a steady climb to the top. So so when you had your conversations uh, with people, did you get the perception that this was kind of a fair system or not working at all or what? I think people felt that it was really fair. Like people who do good work move up. But if you're not good, then you get warned, you know, once, twice, maybe three times if you're lucky. But if you're not good, like you leave and people know that if they do a good job, they're rewarded. And I think with this level system, another thing that goes with it is the letter grades, right? So they do have like these performance reviews every year, I think every six months could be different in different regions and stuff. But those letter grades also are tied to your ability to move up and down. If you have a low grade, then that'll hit you 
when you're being evaluated or you're trying to move up. So I feel like you are under pressure to constantly deliver good things. Like if you slack off maybe for a quarter, then that goes on your grade and that might affect your ability to move up. And with these letter grades as well, I think another thing that's worth mentioning is that per team, there's like a limited quota. So it's impossible for everyone to get an A which encourages competition between colleagues. I mean, they're both good and bad sides of this, right? Uh, the, the good could be that it's kind of more transparent. You as someone in the company actually knows a little bit more what it takes to go up a certain level and therefore can focus on that. The bad being, or the risk being that this requires really, really good tracking, i.e., you know, are you really tracking all the performances of your employees? On the other hand, I wouldn't claim that I know a better system uh, than this, mm. uh, especially when running like such a big company, right? And from the company perspective, if being a little bit you know, more harsh about it, it's a great way to gamify the system, to make people always wanting more, you know, and not think about quitting, but instead think about how do I get to that next level? It sounds evil to a lot of people, but from the company's perspective, it's probably a very, very good way to keep people locked in and loyal. I don't know if gamify is the right term for it, but I do think like one thing to point out is like for these leveling up sessions, it's three people. So I guess you would have to kind of work your relationship. I don't know if you know which three people will be there. That would be a good question to ask, but you would have to get all those people on your side to move you up. And one person said that these levels are only valid for two years. In that case, it means that you can't also just, like, let's say you hit a high enough level, kind of just sit back, right? So you're constantly being assessed and you have this track record. And also your levels will impact not just your ability to move up, you know, like sometimes let's say I'm eyeing a position, but, you know, too bad, like my level's not good enough. I'm just going to have to steadily work there until I can get it. But, you know, it also affects, like, um, in some part your salary range and um, according to one person even you know how much budget they get when they go on business trips so uh, there's a lot of benefits tied to moving up and also again a lot of restrictions based on like uh, how often you can apply to move up so yeah I thought it was quite interesting so for me, being educated in the Scandinavian management school, actually the view is very different. The view is that me as a company should enable and give training to make the employee progress. It is the responsibility of the company and the leader. So did any of the interviewees you talk about talk about like employee training programs or stuff like that? Yeah, so actually um, people were very positive about Huawei's training and how much it invests in growing its employees. And I think that's another part of this kind of Huawei trade-off, which is working yourself maybe metaphorically, hopefully, to death in exchange for money and also career growth. So there are two things that are worth talking about. One is this idea of having like a shifu and being a tudi, so kind of like a master um, and you're like the disciple. So there's like that system, which I think is worth talking about, and also just training camps. When you're in Huawei, you do get like a mentor. And this mentor, part of their KPIs that they're evaluated on is growing you as an uh, as an employee. So it's not just one of those things where like, you know, I've been in a situation where I have a mentor and they're like totally negligent. I never see them. Like that's part of their KPIs. So this person is in charge of training you. 
Um, they may not be your line manager. I think in some cases they might be, but after a year or so, uh, when you're you've kind of settled into your role, you get assigned um, a disciple. So they have this pairing, which I think is nice because not all companies do that. And and so the other part that I think is worth bringing up is um, the, these boot camps or trainings, right? And there's one which is a two week onboarding training session, and like some people mentioned that you know of course it's a lot of it's about company culture, but maybe they also have like a jog session in the morning, which I think a lot of media reports have brought up as part of Huawei's military-like culture. And I think something that interviews brought up is this idea of Jingsheng, which if, you've, if you're a student in China, you're very familiar with. It literally means like military training, and you have to do Jingsheng when you move from, let's say, like middle school to high school, high school to college. But I think when it, when you call it military training in English, it sounds very hardcore. And from what I've heard, it varies vastly, like depending on what province, like what city you're in. But in some cases, it's just like walking around the track or like jogging. So I think for a lot of people, this idea of jogging as part of training or even onboarding or team building is like it's not that weird. But so they have that onboarding session. And then there's much longer training sessions where you don't do anything but train for your role. Um, so this is what Shen Rei told us. Huawei does employee training really well. Before I joined, I graduated with a math degree and I didn't know anything about telecommunications. But after we finished training, we were thrown straight to the front line until clients we were experts. They invest three months of time where you don't work on anything else. At first, you were a greenhorn, but after two to three months of training, you understand telecommunications pretty well. Then you can go to the clients and help them on different issues. What Shen Rei mentioned is, I think in one of his training sessions, they actually had everyone because he was in Shenzhen, the headquarters at the time. Um, they, I guess, bust everyone to Dongguan to one of their factories, and they spent maybe like a day working at one of the factories. Part of it is for him. He said like it was the experience, maybe understanding the company's business overall, like not just what they're going to do, but also like at the fundamental levels of at the factory, and I guess like. Also, a team building kind of experience. I mean, I don't know. Like he he didn't spend a lot of time in other factories, right? So he said it was like a pretty nice, clean factory. Because I was like, oh, is that was that a way、um, for them to kind of like squeeze free labor out of you? You know, me <laughs> being the very critical、uh, reporter, I guess. And he was like, no, it's actually like really clean. It was nice. It wasn't it wasn't like grueling work.、Um, so I thought that was kind of another interesting facet of his experience, like having them work at the factory. But yeah, I think I don't know. I guess maybe I can understand why people make this trade-off. Then you know, working insane hours, especially as like a young twenty-something, this idea of like someone will tell you what to do, sort of to and invest in you to grow you, and all you have to give back is just like all your energy. And as a young person, like that's kind of all you have. You don't have any experience, right? So you'll like put in all your hard work and your effort, and you'll get paid for it, and you'll get trained. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when trying to kind of understand Huawei and listening to all the people you spoke to, there are just so many things they do that we've seen in a lot of other companies. Everything from Microsoft to global accounting firms to you know、uh, how Alibaba and Tencent works in China. And considering that Huawei is one of the oldest tech companies in China, founded eighty seven. 
I'm starting to wonder whether it is the other way around, whether maybe they got inspired from a few American companies when thinking about how they should do their management, set it up in China, although with very unique Chinese parts. And that's actually what formed how, you know, Jack Ma or Ponima thought about when they were starting their companies and they should run their teams. There's a book called The Huawei Story written in 2015. Um, and in it, they mention um, Huawei's mattress culture, which also comes up, you know, if you Google it, which is this idea of like a long time ago, like would give out like folding mattresses uh, because people had to work so hard that they would sleep in the office. But now what's uh, kind of this mattress culture has turned into people just sleeping during lunchtime. Um, and it's not as hardcore, right? It's just part of the company culture where at lunchtime after everyone eats, everyone goes back to their desk, everyone has like, and people just sleep. Um, mm-hmm. In the book, they mentioned that this idea of sleeping in the office, actually like in Netscape a long time ago, they had this. So, and in the book, they also mentioned that Ren Jinfei was also pretty, you know, he's pretty nerdy and um, pretty nerdy about other company cultures and histories and he would read a lot. So I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if he also tried to learn from other successful um, corporate culture things from other companies. So I think Ren Jingfei is actually kind of a mysterious character. Um, he's, for a long time, he just refused to speak to media. He was very a very low-key figure. Um, and it wasn't, I think, it wasn't until his daughter, Meng Wanzhou, was detained in Canada for, you know, allegedly violating Iran sanctions um, that he began to speak more to to media to kind of defend the company and also, yeah, I mean, like I think it was necessary that at that point for him to jump into the limelight. But he has an enormous influence over the company. Um, his words, his speeches, his interviews, a lot of it is like widely disseminated and in a way studied in the company. The feeling Ren Zhengfei gives me is similar to Mao Zedong. There's a kind of cult of personality in the company. Whether or not Huawei can still be great after Ren leaves, I have my doubts. The more we dig into it, the more it feels like this is probably where it all started in China. Tech company, certain ways to manage the teams, certain ways to motivate the teams, certain ways to make a lot of people work very hard, even though it's not for their own best, actually. Those are all these stories we've been discussing over the last few months with 996, with Alibaba, with Tencent, you know, much younger companies than Huawei. So maybe I'm just going overboard with this, but it really feels like maybe it is with Huawei where everything started. I think in that book, the Huawei story, they actually tie Huawei's rise to the story of China opening up because, you know, it was uh, started in 1987 and, and also it was in Shenzhen, which was at the time... Now it's not as special, but it was a special economic zone where, you know, it wasn't it was very market oriented. Right. And people could experiment more with business. So I think there is some element of like Huawei's story being kind of representative of a moment in time in China's development history. Regarding Ren Jingfei and what Shinrei just said, I think what strikes me about that is that Huawei and also the founder like really understand the power of uh, language and ideology and using that to kind of keep everyone, no matter where they are in the world, on the same page. He actually brought up a few examples of phrases that he still remembers quite deeply and them being very prevalent in a moment in time, perhaps because 
people had to study it or even discuss it, right? So one example, which is that he told me, is "ban deng yao zuo shi nian long," which is like you have to sit on this chair for like this little chair for and be cold for ten years, and after that, after you've like endured that, then you can kind of think about moving up or. I mean, the idea is about endurance and, like,、mm. what is that? There's also that Chinese term like "chu cool," right? Like eating bitterness, like basically just going through a really tough period, and then reaping the rewards from kind of that, enduring that pain,、um, and that being like a phrase that was kind of circulating the company or his department for a while.、Um, another one being like "li chu yi kong," which is like everyone. Putting their efforts in the same direction, in the same area,、um, just and yeah, like what I mentioned before with the sizui dui, like just these catchphrases that that suddenly become just omnipresent, becoming everywhere, and people even discussing like how to apply it to their own work. So like another employee said that once they had a meeting where they discussed this very abstract military concept, right? Or this very abstract phrase that's like an idea or a broad strategy, and then just saying like, "Oh, how do we do it in our work and what we do?" I think that's pretty unique, right? I don't know. Have you heard anything similar? I mean, it reminds me in a way of like all these banners that you see in China,、um, or all these catchphrases from the government side, like "Zhongguo Meng," like Chinese dream, which is so abstract, but. Perhaps like within different government departments, they'll just, they'll probably talk amongst themselves and be like, "How do we realize the Chinese dream?"、Um, so starting from something very very broad and abstract, that is suddenly everywhere. Like you see, like everyone knows about Zhongguomeng, right? Even if you don't know specifically what it's talking about, but everyone knows what it is. Yeah, I just feel this is very telling of a company that was founded in the late eighties in China. I mean, when listening to all of this, it's astonishing that they are even able to recruit any person born in the late '90s or after that. And all their messaging is probably exactly the opposite to all the twenty-something、uh, first-time founders in China now, when they are starting a company and what they are saying to their teams. But I think this is a very important note to understand. Where the company is from, how they are acting, and how they perceive themselves on the world stage. I guess for some people, maybe it's like has the appeal of like a battle cry, right? Even though it might sound kind of cheesy, and I think like it's in even though there are these really let's say stilted or very abstract slogans or strategic sayings that proliferate around the company. I think also. Employees kind of joke about it too. Like,、um, so one of the employees that I spoke to talked about like this example of、um, how "fendol" or struggle is so prevalent that in their internal messaging app they'll have all these gifs of related to struggle, like a guy dying on a computer while he's typing because his hands are and his hands are bleeding because he's working so hard, or like a gif of a guy like whipping another worker and saying like work,、um, and then like another one of some. Like a, I guess a steamed bun character who has a ninja band that says "fendor" or "struggle" on it. So I, I do think there's like, yes, there's very old、uh, propaganda sounding like phrases that everyone kind of hears and talks about, maybe even.、Um, but of course, like people joke about it, 
becomes some GIF, you know, in the internal messaging app. So, but that's part of the company culture, right? And that's that sustains it too. Is if employees then take this phrase and turn it into something of their own. Yeah, while listening to some of these details,、uh, I feel very impressed. While listening to other details, I don't know if I should laugh or cry. To be honest, <laughs> there's this quote from. One of the top Huawei execs and、uh, some Chinese leader had asked her, like, "How do you feel about Huawei's success?" This is like a few years ago,、uh, and she said, "Like, I feel like crying, but I don't have tears." There's like a Chinese phrase for that, but it was just—I mean—that kind of pulls a lot of things together, right? Like this idea of never really feeling comfortable or trying to acknowledge your success because you're always fighting, but also being really. Really exhausted from working constantly, that even being successful, like you can't even, you have no tears left, you know. Yeah. So the last question is actually how sustainable this is,、uh, as we see with a lot of other companies in China, the entire workforce is built on young talent that have no families, no other priorities in life than working and progressing and making more money or learning more. But people get older and they get trained and they. Get to learn more, and then they get families, and they get other priorities in life. So the question is, how sustainable this will be going forward when they need to grow even more? Yeah, I mean, I guess so far, I guess at the moment they do have people who are willing to sacrifice their personal life、uh, in exchange for the company. But yeah, I mean, you know, when I spoke to those other people, they said maybe one day when we want to have kids, or you know, for former employees. I'm older now, and I have kids, and I would not rejoin Huawei now. But it was great when I was younger. So I mean, obviously, people there's going to be a wide range of opinions on this.、Uh, I've also heard that for software engineers, it's particularly hardcore, and、um, a lot of people leave after one or two years. So hopefully, that was a decent overview of Huawei's corporate culture. There's it's such a deep and broad area. You know, people have written books about it. So. Hopefully, this has piqued your interest, and you can explore it a bit more. And maybe it helps frame conversations or media reports about Huawei overall now. Yeah, at least for me, it answered one of the biggest unanswered questions I had when reading all this coverage about Huawei, which is what is the actual company and what are employees' perception of it. And as always, when you have a company of that size, it's impossible to cover all the different parts. But It's nice to at least get a small glimpse of how the corporate culture is. So, as always, thanks for listening.、Um, we would love to follow up on this topic. So, if you have any suggestions or leads or know people who would love to share their experience, please get in touch. And you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook.、Um, just find us on social media. And thank you for listening. 